You're listening to the Revenge of the Birds podcast, part of the SB Nation podcast network. Hosted by Blake Murphy 7, all about your Arizona Cardinals. And welcome into the Revenge of the Birds podcast, your complete cards coverage. Good morning, Cardinals fans. This episode will be airing on Friday before a big week for the Arizona Cardinals. Got a game upcoming against the Houston Texans on Sunday, followed by a game Thursday night football national game against the Green Bay Packers. Now, before we get to that, we have to talk about this team. This team that has managed so far to defy pretty much all expectations. Even the most diehard Cardinals fan was not picking this team to start 6-0. and Now, whether or not you picked the Cardinals to win against the Browns goes without saying. Most Cardinals fans, I think at this point, have decided to believe in this team. To believe that this team is capable of going all the way. Doesn't mean that they will. But when it comes to adversity, and we've seen adversity in Arizona and how teams in the past have struggled to overcome even simple obstacles such as a backup quarterback that the team didn't expect to come into a game or had to practice on a short week going to the opposite coast or even having their head coach missing, as was the case in this past game. Chandler Jones, we knew was going to be out. Corey Peters, out day of. We found out also that Zach Allen and the guy who was probably going to be calling the plays for the Cardinals were out. And what did the Arizona Cardinals do? They exceeded expectations. And perhaps we should have seen this coming. The talent level on this team is something that we can say is a lot higher than most people expected. People like A.J. Green, people like J.J. Watt have brought this Cardinals team up from where they were a year ago into the elite talent category of the NFL. Obviously, it wouldn't be possible without Kyler Murray. And we're going to talk a bit about him as I go through the review of the Browns game before jumping right into talking a bit about what these team expectations are, what they should be, and of course, a slight touch at least for the most part on the upcoming Texans game this Sunday. First, in reviewing the Browns game, uh, let's at least talk about just what the Cardinals had to overcome and how they stepped up, how they delivered in a hostile environment. Uh, Some of the things that I liked at least where I saw was just the way that the game started. Cardinals, at least right now, a narrative that hasn't been talked about as much but has been fun to watch has been DJ Humphreys as a team captain stepping onto the field is so far 6-0 and discerning the coin toss, and that has led the Cardinals to receiving the ball to kick off the second half in pretty much every game this season. Cliff has always deferred, and I think it's a nice approach for those of us who lived through the Arians era, being able to see the Cardinals manage the game to get to a scoring drive to end the half, and then be able to start with the ball in the second half. They've been able to help put teams away. Now, some of those drives, or even first first drives for the second half, have ended in but a disaster. We'll get to all that, but the way the Cardinals started was against the number one run defense, run I should say, excuse me, run offense in the NFL. Was that they were able to stop them on third and eleven? Meaning they stopped the run twice, and Byron Murphy gets a pass breakup on Odell Beckham Jr. Byron, so far this season, he's blossomed in a way that I think most Cardinals fans were hoping that he would. That Steve Kimes certainly is hoping he would. It hadn't been seen since he was in the inside, but this is the talent level, the guy who was supposed to be a top 10 potential talent in the 2019 draft falls all the way to the second round. And the Cardinals end up in a great position to not only go from Larry Fitzgerald to DeAndre Hopkins as far as a seamless transition from one Hall of Fame caliber receiver to another Hall of Fame caliber receiver, but maybe being able to go to a man cover corner and Patrick Peterson, who was never necessarily a Hall of Fame level talent. Maybe at some point he was on that track. But to at least another guy who could be a Pro Bowl talent, especially in man coverage in Byron Murphy. He has been sticky this year. 
and that's been something good to see. Another thing I like from the game as far as with against the Browns is Kyler Murray had a bit more say in the game plan. With Cliff Kingsbury not calling the plays, you have Spencer Whipple, who, again, at least, is maybe not necessarily the unsung hero. I think a lot of that belongs ultimately to this Cardinals coaching staff being able to prep the players and Cliff Kingsbury having enough of the game plan done before his COVID test that we got to at least see the effectiveness of him as a coach and the fact that wasn't that he went out on Monday. We saw essentially the same game plan. We got to see essentially him hand off as what Vance Joseph, I believe, or I think it was actually the uh, special teams coach Jeff Rogers said to Spencer Whipple. Hey, man, it's not like you're getting a minivan. You're getting the keys to a Ferrari. <laughs> All you have to do is just not screw it up. This car will go from zero to 200 miles an hour. That car, of course, being this Cardinals offense behind Kyler Murray. Well, Kyler, on the first drive of the game, he checks into a run play. Sees there's no linebackers out in the middle of the field. Third and six. We've seen the Cardinals in the past, particularly in 2020, run the ball in third and long situations. Anything longer than third and five is considered third and long for teams. And being able to pick up first downs, in part because of having this type of RPO air raid scheme that's able to create space, but more so because of the fact that they have a guy in Chase Edmonds who is able to make use of that space. Chase is able to pick up at least a 40-yard run, and uh, the announcer, of course, messed up the call. He called it a draw play. It looked like it was clearly an RPO as far as the run-pass option, but rather than it being a predetermined, hey, if we got this many players, you pass this many, it seemed as though Kyler checked it into a run saying, all right, we're going to run this ball right into the teeth of the defense where there are no linebackers. You run it up the middle, Chase at least makes a nice cut outside, and then the safeties, uh, Justin, I believe it was the, uh, I can't remember which one of the safeties it was. It wasn't Greedy Williams, I believe it was maybe John Johnson, takes a bad angle a little bit behind, and Chase Edmonds scampers up the field, and already the Cardinals then are in scoring range. Now, they did have some issues. There was a fumble on that drive. A lot of people forget that turned it into third and 21. There was four fumbles on the day. And I sent out a tweet during the game talking about how the Cardinals have probably two issues with that. One of them makes sense. It's the fact that this is the second game that has not had Rodney Hudson in it. You've got a brand new center. This is on the road in a hostile environment where it's a loud crowd there at the dog found. But the other avenue is that the way Kyler Murray carries the ball is almost this Deshaun Jackson, Michael Vick type where you can hold it with one hand like a loaf of bread running around at some point. I think it's going to be able to bite the Cardinals. This game, the Cardinals, I believe, had two fumbles that were lost. There was, I think, four fumbles total. He fell on top of two of them. Neither, None of them were turned over to the Browns. And I think that right now, when you're talking about something like this with the Cardinals, it's something to look for, but it's not something that defines the narrative. Previously in Cardinals plays, you talk about Kyler Murray taking bad sacks by running backwards. This would be against the games like the Panthers taking a bad sack. Other games, at least, you'd be taking about a field goal range. It was a narrative that defined the Cardinals. Now we're seeing, at least, that the Cardinals are able to, and sometimes overcome some of these sacks, or in others, be able to put together turnovers on defense or be able to have solid offensive drives on the next play and make that adjustment come back and hit once again. I liked how in this play, the Peter King broke it down after the game. Kyler Murray was talking with assistant wide receivers coach Spencer Whipple about some of his favorite plays, and he really loved this out route to Christian Kirk when they would get to a certain point of the red zone. Essentially, he would be able to bait the defense into a run by stepping up, but he was always going to throw it. And we've seen Kyler being able to throw on the move, taking that next step that we've seen some of these more elite quarterbacks, such as the likes of Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson, or even in younger generations, Patrick Mahomes, that's the type of playmaking that evolves you to a different level as a threat because if teams suddenly are afraid that you're going to scamper, and believe me, Kyler Murray can scamper, and are afraid of the pass, then you've opened up a brand new dynamic for your offense. And we have not seen this in bulk. We've seen the Cardinals in Kyler's rookie year. He wanted to say, hey, I can operate from the pocket, make the deep throws, spend some time being able to have these designed runs, but it wasn't a lot of scampering. 
Year two, we see Kyler would keep the ball on a lot of times and try to pick up the first down or get out of bounds, or maybe slide a little bit short of the goal line. Now he seems to be putting all of those phases together, being able to pass, run, and even looking to run to pass, where he's able to keep his eyes downfield, look to extend the play a bit with his legs, and be able to pull up with a much bigger gain overall as a result. Now, maybe some of this is adjustment in 2020. A lot of teams played the pass. Kyler would fake it like he was going to throw and take off for a run. Defenses seemed to be expecting that he was going to extend the play. And he would then utilize his legs, take off, and get downfield. But in this case, we get to see a lot more of how he's been able to step up and trust his weapons to be able to get the ball. Now, I think at least in the game that the Cardinals played, there was a couple times they were close to breaking it wide open in the first half few things that stopped that the first one was the Browns offense I've said that I'm a Kevin Stefanski fan I think that he is maybe one of the best run game coordinators outside of Kyle Shanahan in the NFL he understands that he have spacing he understands the idea of being able to get interior blocking offensive linemen to be able to get guys into space and then downfield and where the Cardinals were able to take advantage in this game was in part, I think, due to Vance Joseph's schematic defense. Even without Chandler Jones, the Cardinals were able to, with their wide setup, kind of force a lot of those running backs inside. There was only a few big plays Kareem Hunt was able to make. And they were not as fooled by the counters or by some of the other areas as play action. Really, it came down to, in this game, the Browns had to rely on Baker Mayfield's legs. If you have to make a choice between relying on Baker Mayfield's legs or Kyler Murray's legs, it's a pretty easy decision to make. And I think Stefanski, in this result, he fell into maybe not the same trap necessarily, but the same issue of realizing, man, this Cardinals team, they go for it on fourth down, there's going to be a lot of points scored. Points are going to be a premium. We have to go for it. They go for it on fourth and three. They go for it another time, I believe, on fourth and one. And in this guard... The Cardinals run what Vance Joseph is known to do a lot on third down, which is the press man cover zero. And essentially, man across the board, all the linebackers are standing there in the A-gap, no safety over the middle. And then how he'll fire off is some guys will rush the quarterback, some guys will drop back into that coverage with the idea of mixing up said QB. And part of the reason why you like to do that is to overload the offensive line. Everyone's up there at the front. Someone is going to come free because it's just the nature of 11-on-11 football. You've only got five offensive linemen in protect. You bring in another tight end, even another tight end. You're not sending guys out onto the field. You fire those guys at the line, and suddenly you've got seven people rushing the quarterback. You've got a quarterback who's back there. You've got five guys in front, and at most you probably have one tight end because otherwise you're only going to have three receivers with four defenders back there, you're going to basically get a mismatch. And what we've seen with Vance Joseph, he's been creative enough in those blitzes and using his inside linebackers, whether that's Jordan Hicks or Isaiah Simmons. In this case, it was Hicks. He's been able to get results and sacks because they're able to hit the quarterback before the quarterback moved to his next read. When you're a quarterback, you're facing press man cover zero. He's got a quick get rid of the ball. If that first read is covered, the goal of press man cover zero is to essentially either force a ball to get thrown away, see if you've got a guy who can drop back looking for that ball dropping back into coverage. Think of the Isaiah Simmons interception of Russell Wilson. Or just try to get there before he can even get to his second read. And that happened in this case where you had a sack on fourth down. The Cardinals are able to take over. And I think it's been fun to see that even the Cardinals players who are not stars were able to earn some of the keep there. I think Devon Kennard earned his game check this week. It's not to say that he doesn't earn it every week. Uh, I think at least players are put too much on the line, too much to sacrifice to question those types of things. The only time you have to question effort is when you can see on the field. In some of the cases, at least of players who maybe have some of that reputation or other areas, you'll know when you know. And that is not the case with anyone, I think, on this Cardinals team. Like, you've been able to see Jalen Thompson flash a bit more. And I think the biggest thing for the Cardinals that we've seen was that they also had a big play that happened immediately after they made a big play on defense. And that's how you become an elite team is by taking points away from the defense 
and then returning with points in offense. You got a big play that Kyler makes under pressure, throws a ball that was well read. The flag went toward Arizona after what should have probably been at least maybe not one pass interference, but one that was a second that nullified an interception by the Browns, which probably wouldn't have stood since the safety didn't get his feet down. But Browns fans are really upset about this game and the officiating. And some of that makes sense. I think you take a look at Kyler Murray getting shoved out of bounds as he was running. There's not really much of a thing a defender can do when you've got a quarterback who runs like Kyler Murray that you're trying to stop, trying to make sure he gets out of bounds. But what you don't want to do if you're a defender is try to see if they aren't forcing him out of bounds, and all of a sudden he just tucks it back, runs upfield, and you had a chance to tackle him. We're too afraid of getting the flag, and suddenly he can just take off willy-nilly down the field. And with Kyler, it may be an extra 15 yards picking up. The second roughing the passer call, in which he basically is already dropping back and falling and gets a slight shove, doesn't even fall down, doesn't throw up his hands, doesn't do anything. That's where I can understand a lot of the Browns fans' complaints. And I think for me, I'm a person who cares, even if an officiating call goes against the Cardinals or against my team, it does not benefit it. I root for the clean games, for competitive games. You don't want to see games feel like that they were determined by calls. Because that's just how it goes. Do you want to feel like that you won because the refs handed a game to you? Usually most fans say, eh, it doesn't matter. Win's a win. But when you put that shoe on the other foot, mm, it feels a little bit different. And we saw that a couple of times with the Cardinals as well. There was a Kyler touchdown called back on a holding call. Josh Jones gets a bit much of the jersey. You can say maybe it didn't affect too much of the play. I think it was at least an obvious call when you see it. Sometimes those calls don't end up getting seen. And DeAndre Hopkins, at least in this game, despite the fact that his stats had two touchdowns, it didn't seem like he went off for a crazy amount. But when you factor in some of the DPI flags that were there, he truly had a maybe not nearly, but a very uncoverable day which has been great to see for Cardinals fans who probably at least at this point through the season were wondering, hey, it's not that they're ignoring Hopkins, but he's not the 1,400-yard guy this year because they got too many other guys that will take away from that. When's the Hopkins game going to come? Well, if you have a couple of those flags end up being catches, that might have been your Hopkins game there, folks. I like how the Cardinals had gone up and made it 20-0. to You saw the Browns be able to hit back with some speed. You saw some solid play calls that were designed, at least. I liked how there was a play call that you saw with, uh, I think it was at least a screen game. You remember back at the 2019, I think it was 2020, first game, where he Mostert scores a long touchdown on what looked like a small option route, fake to the outside, run back to the inside. He scores from some 75 yards out. Well, it seemed like the Cardinals took that play but borrowed a bit from it on a third down call. They set up essentially what seemed like it was the same type of route, but it was a screen. Unfortunately, Miles Garrett comes in, blows up a bit of the screen, just a bit too much. He might be the best pass rusher in the NFL. The Cardinals end up punting on third down, but you like to see some of those different calls of taking in what other coaches have done, but maybe adapting it to your strengths. I think that's one of the pros that we've seen from Cliff Kingsbury, and even though it's a play that you may see doesn't work, there's times at least where we've seen a lot more of a rhythm and a flow as far as being able to adjust, not just on third down or some of these kind of maybe trickier, a little bit out there play calls, but being able to develop a more comprehensive offense than simply Kyler just runs around and throws it deep. I think at least if I have to talk about and wrap up with the first half, I think I liked what Robert Alford did Uh, overall. I think that it's easy to say at this point that that we were wrong on him. A lot of fans, I think we've all given up on him after being two years out of the league, after two years in which he never played a game in Cardinals Red, had not gotten out of training camp. Yeah, he hadn't gotten out of training camp for the first two years. Instead, this year, he's proven himself to be scrappy, to be smart, to be a solid defender. Now, he still has gotten a couple of times where you can see at least some of the limitations. Donovan Peoples-Jones touchdown gives him a bit too much cushion. Peoples-Jones is 6'4 and maybe 220. Alfred's a 200-pound 5'10 corner. He gets bowled over into the end zone. But in terms of seeing that smart player, he's at least been able to show enough health and flash to be an important part of this team to be able to be trusted on that outside while you're having Marco Wilson, who 
is coming along. He's not playing at the highest level, but he has not looked like he's a rookie out there, folks. And that is something that's super encouraging. I think the Hale Mayfield, as much as people talk about it, is simply an adjustment area where someone blew an assignment, was trying to check down underneath. I think part of the issue was people had expected on that Cardinals defense that Mayfield was going to get sacked. He was a wizard in the pocket in Arizona, probably came out of four or five sacks that he should have taken. Chucks it deep. Peoples Jones is tall. The Cardinals, at least in this regard, as we've seen before, have had issues defending Hail Marys. You think of Aaron Rodgers. Think of others. You think about how even the Bills in their scenario had three guys that were able to get on DeAndre Hopkins. It's just that's all you can do. This was much more of a schematic area where Byron Murphy was late to the play, looked back like there was someone who was supposed to be there. Isaiah Simmons was trailing behind. I don't know what the responsibility in the coverage was, but Vance Joseph did go on the radio and say that they went from more of this robber type of, hey, we're going to basically try to rush and sack the passer because... You know, that way you don't even get to a Hail Mary if you can get the sack. And then transition from that coverage into the prevent Hail Mary defense. He said that they had issues transitioning. Probably was just one or two people who are supposed to be back there to ensure that you didn't have a three-on-two with one guy out of the picture making it three-on-one type of defense to end the half. And some of Mayfield, I think, as far as he's been, we've seen from Cardinals fans some of the pros that a lot of people in Cleveland have liked and some of the cons as well. It's clear to all who the winner is of the Mayfield-Murray question, not just in the record, Kyler being 2-0 now, but Baker has the athleticism that you need to succeed in the NFL, but not the athleticism to thrive in the NFL. He's got an arm that's got a cannon, but it's not like it's going to be a howitzer or a rocket. He's got smart plays. He was able to get out of sacks and scramble, but one of those scrambles came back in the second half to bite him in the butt, and even get him hurt in a way where he was trying to do a bit too much. And I think in this regard, the hard part with Mayfield is a lot of people look at him and say, we want you to be this franchise quarterback. And I think that he can be that type of a quarterback. But when you're talking about an elite quarterback, someone who can carry your team, someone who can elevate with traits around, I think that Mayfield can elevate you to a point, but there's limitations. Just like there is for the tier of the Jared Goffs, of maybe the high-end Teddy Bridgewaters, of the Kirk Cousins of the world. You can talk about, I mean, we talked about the Jared Goff. Maybe Carson Wentz falls into this category. You're going to be a team that's winning with these quarterbacks, but you're not going to be a team that's going to be contending for championships year in and year out, or a team that's perpetually able to be able to run on the playoff cycle. There's a reason why when the Browns were not able to run the ball, and Kareem Hunt went out injured, which is one of the things that we saw was they had to run the ball more than they wanted to with Kevin Stefanski, who said he had a snap count. We've seen that Baker had to put the game on his back with a beat-up Beckham with no, Landry, with no Jarvis Landry. And it's not that he struggled to do so, but you saw at least in this game, and this is probably how the game was decided, without those two starting tackles. I think that Baker Mayfield played his way into showing not just the grit and the toughness, uh, the fact that we've found out that he probably injured his shoulder on a J.J. Watt sack, but that he played through that pain to try to get his team back at it. I think that there's a tenacity in him. There's a fire in him. I said he like Cleveland needs. And if he ends up turning out to be the Jeff Garcia for Cleveland, that is a huge win for the Browns, but it's not probably the win that their fans want to have. Because all of these fans will then look at the Josh Allens across the street and say, hey, this guy looks like he's basically in the MVP conversation. Why, why, why did we take Baker over this guy? Hey, look at this Lamar Jackson guy at 32. We, you're telling me that we could have gone, you know, and been able to take this guy number one overall. And for some reason, we decided to go with Baker, hoping that he'd turn into another Drew Brees, but really seeing a guy who has had high upside play and some mid-level play but not really that elite quarterback play. So maybe one or two games, but the sustainability is something I think that's going to be questioned. Talking about the second half, let's go and finish up talking about the previous game. I liked Kyler being able to step up and learning from a previous sack. There was a sack he took where he was essentially running backwards. You saw how Jadavion Clowney was chasing after him. Miles Garrett got by. He turns back to try to run, bail the corner. There's a defender there. Teams are starting to defend Kyler Murray a bit better by recognizing if he's going to run back, 
that far behind the offensive line. All you got to do then is run a second guy up there. When he tries to spin and run out, you got another guy already there waiting for him, and he will take a huge loss. It's a big play for the defense. So there's another play where they blitzed a corner. Kyler at least sees the corner, and instead of taking that same run around, he steps up in the pocket, doesn't lose as much yardage. He could have probably lost five to maybe seven more yards if he had gone backwards the other way. Maybe, in instead, when you look at film, he could have gotten around the corner. It looked like there was a bit of space in some room where he could have run around that left side. But I do think it's an example of him learning from mistakes. You hate seeing those negative plays, but knowing what Kyler Murray can do, I think you take the positives knowing that they overwhelm the negatives. Now, this is a game, at least after the Hail Mayfield, was a lot closer than I think people think when you look at the final score. This is a game where the Cardinals led as much by 20-0, and then at halftime, it's 23-13. And the Cardinals, they come out for the most part, get a sack on third, they have a sack, I believe, on third and 10 of Kyler, and then you have another drop by Kirk on third and five, a play where he gets lined up one-on-one coverage, Kyler throws it to more of the back shoulder. It's a tough adjustment to make, but it's one that he's made plenty of times. you got to make that catch, and he drops the pass. This leads to where the Browns totally have a chance to get back in the game. If they score a touchdown, suddenly it's 23-21. to They have an opportunity, even if they went for two, to go make it 23-22. Suddenly you're talking about... Browns team that could go ahead and score. Hey, if they want to go for two again, they go up by seven if they score again. This is a game that was not over. It seemed like everything was cooking. Baker was getting first downs. He had a first down in the middle of the field, another one to Donovan Peoples-Jones. And on third down, I believe you have a play of the game. The Cardinals rush four. This has been a difference we've seen. The Cardinals can now get pressure with four. Previously, if a team was able to rush four, they would get pressure on Arizona. Baker runs out to his left. J.J. Watt watches the quarterback. He watches his eyes on the replay. He's watching Baker to see if he's going to scramble, seeing if he can swat the pass down. He runs after him, trips up Baker. Baker falls hard on his left shoulder, injures that shoulder. And you see J.J. Watt essentially being, in a lot of ways, maybe not necessarily the Fitzgerald replacement, but just being the guy that he is. He sees immediately that Baker's writhing on the ground in a bit of pain. He signals for the training staff, takes a quick knee, and tries to get people away from the play. In part because even though it was a fumble that Mayfield had on the, f- on the field and other people weren't paying attention to him versus the ball, J.J. Watt was able to pay attention to that. And that just shows what a great signing this is. We'll talk a bit about some of that with previewing the Houston game at the end. But at the very end of the game, you turn into where the last chance that you have for the most part ends up turning into A.J. Green dragging Greedy Williams and a game-breaker of picking up him. I think it was about 25, maybe it was 30 yards or so into the red zone. Hop scores a touchdown. Suddenly, it's a 30-14 to 14 game. Browns are down by two touchdowns. We're getting into the fourth quarter. And you see the game put away ultimately for good with about four minutes left with J.J. Swat coming in, batting a pass down on third down. And a fourth down with Robert Alford knocking the ball loose from Odell Beckham Jr. Call it a drop. Call it a great play. Whatever you will. Arizona takes over and puts the exclamation point victory with a hard to it's a it's a hard play to do fade routes, but Kyler throws them so well they're notoriously difficult to complete in the NFL overall. But you can throw the ball like Kyler, and you've got the height of AJ Green, who can not only <laughs> jump over players, but at least is able to get separation this year on some banged up corners. Hey, you can just catch that touchdown and run the ball with. James Conner to win. And in this win, the Cardinals, I think at least, proved what a lot of national people were saying was wrong. As far as, oh, this is going to be their loss. They can't stop the run. They're missing their coach. I think we all overlooked the fact that the Cardinals have depth in their pass rushing situation. They have depth on their coaching staff. Vance Joseph has been a former head coach. He was able to manage the game. They had an offensive mind who was able to at least recognize Cliff's play calling, work with Kyler enough to get it done. And the Browns did not have that depth of missing two tackles. And now if the Cards today were missing Chandler Jones and J.J. Watt, well, you know, maybe you're depending on Marcus Golden to rush the passer. Maybe Devon Kennard needs to step up. But we're seeing how talented and how deep this Cardinals team is. That despite what seemed like it were, maybe not impossible, but difficult odds going against another banged-up team, Having both tackles out proved to be the difference. 
I, I at least said this week, at least it seemed like that was the case of every time that we've doubted the Cardinals this season, every time national media's doubted them, they seem to have always come through in one way or another. And I think that's something important to look at the future, especially with this upcoming game against the Packers, in which I'm guessing a lot of people will probably pick Green Bay, despite the fact it's on the road, despite it's on a short week, they'll say, hey, Arizona's got to lose sometime. I'd love to see if the Cardinals can prove them wrong. Coming up next on the Revenge of the Birds podcast, talk a bit about this team as far as how have expectations potentially changed, and then we'll get into a preview of this Texans game. Be right back here on the Revenge of the Birds podcast. Welcome back to the ROTB pod, your complete cars coverage. With the Cardinals now at 6-0, and oh, their best start since the 70s. They have a chance to do something I think they've never done, which is to go 7-0 and oh and then prove a lot of national media wrong by winning in a nationally televised game against the Green Bay Packers, who a lot of people have picked to challenge the rival Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the Super Bowl. So, before we get to the Texans game, let's talk about playoffs. I think it was, was it Jim Murray Sr., at least, with the playoffs. Don't talk about playoffs. I just hope we can win another game. Yeah, everyone knows the rant. But at 6-0, you kind of have to talk playoffs. Now, last year, the Cardinals, a lot of people are looking at that saying, all right, this has kind of been the joke, I think, is, all right, cool, Cardinals are starting 6-0. Can't wait to see how Cliff ends up going 9-8, and right? Well, probably isn't going to be like that. Outside of an injury, the schedule for the Cardinals it's easier, not tougher. They've been doing this with one of the tougher strengths of schedules in the NFL. They're going to get an easier stretch. They get the Texans. They'll have an upcoming Panthers team that looks like it's got a great defense, but offensively has fallen off quite a bit. They're also going to probably get the Seattle Seahawks without Russell Wilson. Maybe not even once, but twice facing Geno Smith. And so I think when you're talking expectations, what has either changed or shifted? I think a lot of what has changed or shifted, I think, in the Cardinal season is how far they can go. Is there a team that really scares you in the NFC? Right now, probably not, because the Cardinals, offensively, they've been able to be capable of putting up about 35 points a game. They can win in a shootout. They've shown that they can win in a slugfest as well. Now, Maybe if the Vikings have handed them their one loss on a missed field goal that season, things would be a little bit different. But sometimes fate and football end up being things that kind of go together hand in hand. I like to think of the Cleveland Browns and their quest to avoid a beaten season because they're going, you know, 16-0. and They almost managed to win and they ended up blowing it in the last minute. And perhaps one of the most humorous ways you can possibly go. I think of how Jameis Winston was a single interception shy of being able to go 30 and 30. 30 touchdowns and 30 interceptions. Then suddenly they managed to tie it up and go to overtime. And everyone's like, oh, great, we got another shot at this. And sure enough, first play of overtime, Jameis throws a pick six, ending the Buccaneers season and cementing his place in NFL history for a reason that you probably don't want to remember that long, but you can at least say, as far as 30 NFL touchdowns and 30 interceptions, gunslinger ain't a bad place to be, but it's not a place that, of course, as you can tell just by how that game ended, that it's going to be able to get you more than an 8-8 eight eight or 8-9 eight type of season. So, 6-0 and oh with the Cardinals. Let's talk at least about what does the playoff picture look like in the NFC a little bit about what things look like. And it, while it might be a little bit early, obviously, there's still games to be played. Like the question, at least overall, is right now with the Cardinals having home field advantage, because right now they're unbeaten, they're the number one seed. No one else has the same record as them. What do they have to do to actually get into that playoff spot? What is their upside? What does it look like? What are their projections? I think the first thing you look at is a question of, all right, Cardinals are unbeaten. Is there a team that's going to beat them this year? I think of those teams, there's two things I think you want to look at. The first is the obvious. You got the Packers on your schedule. You got another game against the Rams. You got a game against the Dallas Cowboys. Those are your other main competitors, and you've played one of them once. 
You spank them, but it is really hard to beat a team two times a year, much less three times in a single season. We've learned that just from the NFC West. Look at how bad the Cardinals may have been. They still were able to compete and usually split with the Seattle Seahawks. Like you look at this Packers game, obviously, is first. You look at this Rams game that's going to be coming up. And then you look at the Cowboys at the end of the season as a very tense game, given the fact that, depending on how that game may go, does Arizona at least want to try to, in Week 18, go out against a team like the Seahawks when you know, Russell Wilson's going to be back in that last game of the season? I believe that's January 2nd. But do you want to kind of go out and beat the Seahawks to try to get to an unbeaten season. If you do manage to beat the Cowboys versus sitting players, trying to get guys healthy, trying to get some rest, really will depend. I think what it starts with for Cardinals fans is that knowing that, one, this team is not looking at playoffs, which is good. As analysts, our job is to talk about playoffs. It's to look at it. We don't have that type of skin in the game. For them, they're looking at each week as 1-0. That's a mentality and a mindset that seems to have really been bought into by the team so if you're the number one seed obviously in each conference you get a buy i think at least if you're the cardinals your goal is to see how do you do against the packers how do you do against the rams that second time and is your defense able to keep up with this high-powered cowboys offense with a great line that maybe has some questions on defense but no different than your cardinals defense because they've got pass rushers. They've got some guys making plays in the secondary. Trevon Diggs has been looking great. They are some of the top competitors so far through the NFC. And we'll talk a bit more, I think, about the mini by looking at maybe some more questions about if Russell Wilson's long-term future will be there. I think the Bucks, at least, are that fourth team that all the Cardinals don't play on. They should always be mentioned because you can't rule out Tom Brady. And it shows how difficult the NFC West slugfest is. And maybe that's the question for Cardinals fans is, man, are we going to be expecting this team to be an NFC championship appearance? Are we expecting this to be a Super Bowl team? Are expectations too out of control at this point? I think maybe you have to let the season play out. But for right now, this Cardinals team is a place where we can hold and treasure them, knowing that they're going into a game that they're favored by a crazy 17 and a half points. And now we've reached a spot where no one is doubting that they're probably going to be passing that point total against a Texans team that has seen better days. So overall, where the Cardinals at least can end up, I think that if your goal is to end up in a top three seed and not play the Rams for a third time, because it's it's tough to beat teams three times in a row. Now, maybe if the Rams are beat up or Cooper Cup is missing or things end up having some more struggles, maybe it changes. But I think that's where your Cardinals fans can look at is what your measure of success should be for the season. If you end up being a fourth seed and you get lose to a couple of teams and suddenly you talk about the Rams passing you up in the division, the Cowboys at least have the second or first seed, the Bucks win their division, you as the Cardinals essentially have the Rams to worry about. So not only is it going to be a huge game, it's also going to be <laughs> a Monday night football game. Oof. Talk about heavy interest there. If you're able to contend enough against those three teams to hold off one of those top four and get into a top three seed, I think those expectations as Cardinals fans are met. And then we'll see where it goes from there. We'll see where it goes from there. All right, let's go and shift into the last part of the show and talk a bit about the Texans. And this is something where you go back, you watch the film, you look at the team roster and how it's constructed. And in some cases, I think the Texans are being given too little credit. You heard me right. Now, am I saying that that means that you need to go ahead and bet on the Texans to cover that point spread? You could if you wanted to. Maybe maybe things change, but I wouldn't, and here's why. I think the Texans, when you watch them, I think back to those 2018 Steve Wilkes teams, but with one main difference. I think that those teams, when you watch the Texans, you're going to see David Davis Mills, a rookie. He's getting enough protection where he's able to at least scramble a bit. He's in a quick rhythm passing game with 
guys are getting open in Brandon Cooks. You're seeing at least a couple of these design plays. He's getting, on occasion, some good plays to Mark Ingram. Brandon Cooks, of course, seems like he's unstoppable as far as the fact that he is going to seemingly continue to have 1,000-yard seasons year in and year out. But their line is not good. Laramie Tunsil, at least, has been out. They've got Jaron Christian Sr., who's been playing. Well, Tunsil's on IR. They'll miss him. You're also seeing them have to move tackle Max Sharping into right guard. Titus Howard has fallen to second on their depth chart behind Charlie Heck. They tried to fix it with Marcus Cannon, I believe, from the Patriots. He's been hurt. And they don't really have any other stars on offense to really surround Davis Mills with. Now, part of that reason, of course, is because those stars are on the Cardinals now (laughs) or on the Dolphins, if you want to count Will Fuller, who was banged up a lot. They still have been able to get Davis Mills into a rhythm, been able to have him completing passes, but they do not trust him fully. There's not deep shots that we've seen. Now, you could look at and say there aren't deep shots in part because they... Have Cooks, who's a bit older up there. Nico Collins is more of a big size receiver. Chris Moore's gotten some play, but they just don't have the same Will Fuller type of guy who can get separation running a 4-3 speed. And so maybe that's part of it. But I think a lot of it is they're just not wanting Davis Mills to throw deep. They're trying to be able to say, all right, we're going to take this dink and dunk offense, complete balls, get down the field, try to pick up first downs. And a lot of the plays when you see that they're called are like solid plays. There, It's like, all right, third and two, you have a quick out route that's able to hit. The, you're able to kind of hit it in rhythm. You're able to see them be able to be productive. But you're not seeing them score points. And that's where the NFL, when things shrink and you get out of the middle of the field, you get into the red zone, you have to do more than just settle for field goals. You've also seen that the Texans all-line has had issues when it's third and five, third and six. Mills is still a rookie who will hold on to the ball and take some of these bad sacks, or in some cases against the Colts last week, throw a pick. That's the first thing, is that you can see that I think that the Texans are decent coaching, but they don't have the talent. And that was similar to the Cardinals in 2018 when you talk about who was the best player on that 2018 Cardinals offense. And you think about it, like, okay, David Johnson maybe? Well, he ran up the middle a lot. They didn't use him right, but... It didn't seem like he had the same step, right? Was it Fitzgerald? Yeah, but he even didn't lead the team overall in receiving. Their offensive line got decimated. Vicky Seals-Jones had caught a touchdown, but he wasn't the most talented. The most talented skill player on the Cardinals, maybe even offensive player on the Cardinals, was Christian Kirk. It was a step ahead of Chase Edmonds, who really more blossomed, I think, a little bit in 2000. 19, especially 2020, but it was a rookie second-round pick was probably your top guy there. Fitz obviously made Fitz plays because that's what he does, but everyone could at least tell that it wasn't the same Fitzgerald that we had seen under the Carson Palmer days, which is no surprise to anyone. He was 36, I believe. I think it's very similar at this team, and a lot of that is due to not just Bill O'Brien's poor jamming, but the fact that they decided to take this team of the Texans and kind of try to patch up all their holes with a lot of veteran players. And as a result, you're going to get some of those veteran plays. Like, get to see a Mark Ingram pick up 20 yards on the ground on a well-blocked play. You're going to see, at least, a pass get completed, at least, to pick up a first down and third and 10 for 15 yards to Brandon Cooks over the middle. But you're not going to see more than that. And I think that's one of the cases of where the Texans may be a step ahead of the Cardinals were in coaching. Especially when you're talking about that Mike McCoy offense. Gosh, that was terrible. But as far as their talent level goes, they are not nearly on the same page as the rest of the NFL teams. And on the defensive side, they just let go of Whitney Merciless, one of their pass rushers. You got Zach Cunningham as maybe the only other linebackers there, but for the most part... It is just a defense that vastly needs reworking. And I think that's one of the avenues I looked at was this is a team that I looked at the Texans. There's two things that I think you take away from it. Outside of how much Deshaun Watson was carrying this team to that 4-12 and record last year, in spite of everything that went on, you get to see that there's probably a better coaching situation but a worse person situation. And as far as Watson goes, 
I think a lot of people had either suspected he would be back or put on the NFL's list. I'm of the opinion that I'm fine if they want to take a look at the assaults and everything like that one and want to say, all right, like we need to give you more than just a one or two year suspension. I'm fine if he never played football again. I think that when you end up turning it from making a mistake as far as for, oh, I made a mistake for that one. Yeah, you, you still assaulted someone. You still knew what you were doing. I'm one who is fine with being able to allow for redemption for some people. We've gotten to see it before with the likes of Tyron Matthew. Even gotten to see Michael Vick, who had spent time in prison, be able to get his redemption story. And now he's commenting on the NFL, and he's essentially been able to show, hey, like, I've been able to learn and change and be able to take action for my behavior. But when he got those 22 assaults with Watson, there's just this serial nature of it. There's this serial concealment. There's almost even this impact of... The fact that no one ever said a negative thing about him and how shocking it was. And then to suddenly see him turn on reporters in other areas, at least of annoyance, it just seems like it almost feels like this is a guy who's not really repentant and not looking as much to learn from the lessons. But he's just trying to, all right, let's just get this stuff settled, get me back on the field. And it makes me kind of sad that there's so many teams that are kind of rumored or being reported to just throw everything for the chance to be able to get him. Because he's a talented quarterback, don't get me wrong. And maybe this is just an NFL where you sell your soul. But I like to at least hope that there's a little bit more decency that we can have, at least in this league. And a league especially that claims to be for women, and now you end up seeing the way that it's treated a star by essentially not having a league-wide suspension that says, alright, we're not going to do anything Texans, you take care of it. That's you know, if I have a daughter someday, is that something that I'm going to look at and say, all right, you know, commissioner, you got, you know, daughters yourself, or are you proud of the behavior that you've done? And maybe some of that all ends up changing. I just hope, at least for the most part, that we're able to see redemption for the likes of Watson, that we're able to see some form of change. We're able to see the people or the victims be able to feel like they got justice. But it's a hard stretch, I think, because it's a hard world that we live in. And it's a hard NFL. And so I think you can hope for the best. But like the Boy Scouts say, prepare for, unfortunately, what might be the worst, which could be a team's fan base in the next few weeks, trading multiple players and multiple picks for a guy who's under criminal investigation, including by the FBI in this country. I also want to touch a little bit, at least for those, um, I don't want to spend too long on it, I don't think it's personal for me because I don't have any personal connection, but being able to look at with the way the Texans have been, not just over with how their ownership level is with Cal McNair, but seeing how they've transitioned their ownership level. A lot of people started reading stories about Jack Easterby or the guy who back when Game of Thrones was still a thing was kind of considered the little finger. This guy who was out of nowhere who rose to power, this preacher turned character coach who's just started as an intern who suddenly became the interim general manager of the Texans before they went and hired, essentially, the guy that they wanted to hire all along in Nick Casario. Kind of seemed like they tampered to get with him, and, you know, the Patriots kind of put a tam- put a, put a stop to that. He still ends up with the team anyway. guy that they knew from the time when um, Easter B was with Bill Belichick. Some people see that he got himself into that inner circle. You have this weird and interesting picture of a guy. The best way to describe it is, and this is kind of an area of, there's people who are, I guess you could say at least people who are Christian in name only, they identify as that, it's what I grew up with. There's people who I think are very devout and religious in their behavior. There's people in the country who could care nothing to do with religion. I think that's part of at least what makes America in a lot of different ways a place where you can have a lot of learning, a lot of fellowship, a lot of areas of commonality of being in the same country despite you know despite having all those differences but when it comes to the likes of Jack Easterby and you look at how there's a lot of this kind of movement or maybe you'd call almost this you know televangelist movement these preachers who you end up seeing they kind of have a, this almost like a Lamborghini for the Lord type of mentality or flying private jets It's almost this avenue, at least, of selling these ideas of character, selling these ideas of humility, selling these ideas of wanting to have this piety, of wanting to be able to, like, lay down your life, at least for your brother, 
just like we have seen with Jesus. That's the whole type of avenue. But that's only what said in name. And then indeed, people are like, look at this guy talks about humility. I've never seen some sort of unbridled ambition. <laughs> you talk at least about how you want people to go out and self-sacrifice. Well, you're making sure that's everyone else self-sacrificing and not you. It's the it's it's almost what you might call the anti-JJ Watt, the anti-Larry Fitzgerald, these guys who go out and you get what you pay for, you know, like JJ Watt's the kind of guy that you feel like when you listen to him, you're like, yeah, you know what? I'd probably run through a brick wall for that dude. <laughs> because what you see on the field, what he talks about, what he does, all of that stuff, you're like, wow, like this doesn't seem real. Like this dude is basically jacked like Captain America in real life. He's talking like Captain America in real life. And you see him go out and play like Captain America on the football field. It seems too good to be true. What's going to be the catch? Some guys, you know, there isn't a catch. I think it's a rare few. But I do think that they exist. But it doesn't mean that the alternative doesn't. And that's, I think, where you look at with Easterby. And some of the stories you read, there's an ESPN piece last year. One of them I thought was interesting was the idea of, all right, ownership says we're probably going to have to let you go. And he's like, all right, how about we pray with it? They go into a side room, come out, and suddenly it's like, oh, nothing is wrong. We're here with him. And then you get kind of the weird feeling of, like, was he, like, utilizing his religious platform as a weapon? Because that's something I don't think anyone wants to look at. Now, again, as I said, don't know Easterby. Details are the details in the story. Some people, at least on that Texans organization, love him, say he's been a huge mentor, a huge inspiration in their life. I think it's, for me, one of those avenues of, rather than trying to judge or see where it's come from, I think it just feeds in more to this Texans organization that is one of chaos, that's one of discord, and one that basically in this season has probably reached rock bottom. And that's one of the avenues, I think, at least when you're crafting the narrative of this team the Cardinals are about to play. It's a vastly different narrative from some of the other bad teams in the league. You look at a team like the Jets upsetting the Titans, who then went on to just go ahead and crush the Buffalo Bills the following week. I think it was the following week, or maybe it was the following Sunday night, I have to remember exactly. You look at the Jacksonville Jaguars, who are already looking at Trevor Lawrence and how he's developing and making plays, getting a win over the Miami Dolphins. Looking at some of these teams, at least, that are um, in the Philadelphia Eagles, a lot of fans are starting to realize that, hey, Jalen Hurts, even though this offense is having issues, even though there's maybe some questions and limitations, we, we may have something here with him and Devonta Smith. The Texans, I think, on the other hand, and this is one of the avenues, unless they're able to change in a similar way to how the Cardinals changed after that terrible 2018 season, which they went, you know what? We got to change. We got to go full stop. We got to send all this out. We got to rebuild. We got to retool. We're going to do that by bringing in a new coach, a new quarterback. The Texans made a lot of mistakes already to invest themselves into Sean Watson, investing themselves into David Johnson, trading away Hopkins as a result, trading a bunch of picks just because they messed up in the draft, because they relied on the draft and were not able to develop solid tackle play. It feels like this is a team, at least, that for the most part is kind of going to be a bottom dweller. And my hopes that they'll be able to pick themselves up. And hey, if, if Jack Easterby ends up being a part of that, despite everything I've said in this podcast, hey, more power to him. But I really think it's going to be one of those avenues of where we're going to be looking at the Texans as one of these bottom feeders for potentially quite a while, despite the fact that I do like what their coach has done in David Culley. I think Lovey Smith hasn't been given a lot to work with. Maybe there's some questions and issues I have with them. But this is a Texans team that is very vulnerable and is a reason why the Cardinals are so highly favored. So talking about the actual matchup as we wrap up here, this is a game that the Cardinals you'd think could win in their sleep. Now, let's never rule out what people would say would normally be a trap game. Hey, this is a team that's losing coming to town. They're still looking for their first win. They're looking for something tough. I should say, sorry, their second win, I should say. But they've lost 40-0 to zero before to a team like the Bills. They were outclassed. Well, they had to play a very good, maybe a top three team in the NFL. They dominated the Jacksonville Jaguars in week one, but since then have struggled to be able to score in the red zone. Tyrod Taylor, poor guy, gets hurt again. This is a team that the Cardinals should be able to go deep on. 
It's a team that you're going to get these one-on-one matchups down the field with corners and safeties who are either out of position or are able to just get beat because that's just kind of where the talent level is for the Texans. Whitney Merciless out with a tackle out. I do think that the Cardinals, if they get J.J. Watt and Chandler Jones, should be back by this game. That's the hope, at least. If not, he'll at least be back by the Packers game. Then I think you get to look at this as what should be probably a game the Cardinals can win by maybe 20 points. And if they don't, well, then you're not complaining as long as they get the win. And the reason why it's not a trap game, as everyone's pointed out, is because DeAndre Hopkins and J.J. Watt are probably going to be wanting to show those team the team that traded them away and the team that he said, hey, this situation is bad enough. I want to go to a contender. I need to get out of here. And they let him go. He's probably got some fun memories, but there's not a lot of guys there from when he was playing for the Texans. Whole new staff. Whole new coaches. Whole new players. I think it's Brandon Cooks, maybe one of the only guys. There's been so much turnover Watson, right now, he's not playing, and for all knows, he may not play again. We don't know. I think at some point he will just because the NFL, as Steve Kahn once said, you know, if a guy runs a fourth, Hannibal Lecter could run a 4-3, we'd call it an eating disorder. Uh, ain't that the truth sometimes about the things that we'll do for talent? Things that we'll pursue for success. In any case, J.J. doesn't know a lot of those guys, and it wouldn't shock me, at least considering that and the new ownership, if it turns into more of this homecoming party for him, for some of the team. The fact that he'll be remembered for a lot of people as a Texan, and maybe in some cases the quintessential Houston Texan. But I think that he and Hop are able to go off. I think this should be a game the Cardinals, I think, can win 38-10, to 10, being able to put away the Houston Texans. And hopefully be able to look forward to the Packers game. Hopefully guys get are able to stay healthy. Hopefully this is a game where defense is able to feast, make some turnovers. We'll see what the Texans bring. I'm not expecting it to be a game that the Texans just lay down on. I think that they're going to put up a bit of a fight, but I do think the Cardinals will be able to overcome them. Whether it's due to a few big plays or whether it turns into a coming out party, I think that the motivation that the team has... And gosh, if they get Chandler Jones back for the game or if Cliff Kingsbury walks in through the door, I think there will be a lot of excitement that they will have too from that return. But in any case, it's going to be looking ahead to the Green Bay Packers. And it's one of those avenues, at least, of when you're talking about these two franchises. You've seen one franchise that was a bottom dweller. One that was up by three touchdowns on the Kansas City Chiefs in the playoffs. And however, since that moment, Seems like they've gone in opposite directions, with the Cardinals only getting better and among the elite teams in the NFL, while the Texans essentially have had to sit by and watch as some of their star players are now on the opposing sideline. And hopefully that's something that they'll be able to, at this rock bottom, be able to pick themselves up and be able to come back from, to rebuild into a better NFL team. It obviously won't be Sunday. And hopefully won't be Sunday, let me add. But I think Cardinals fans who are going to the game at least be ready because this is hopefully going to be a nice big party for Cardinals fans being able to celebrate a 6-0 team carrying into what should be one of the most anticipated nationally televised game, maybe the most anticipated Thursday night football game in quite some memory. That'll wrap it up for us here on the Revenge of the Birds podcast. As always, you can be able to follow me on Twitter at BlakeMurphy7 for some of Blake's takes there. Make sure that you follow our work that's being done at RevengeOfTheBirds.com. You can also follow our podcast there on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, We're obviously going to be playing at least in pretty much any place that you get your podcasts from. I'll be at the game on Sunday. Uh, Obviously, we've been hanging out with the Bird Gang Travel club for the most part helping them with um, some of the morning setup and getting to hang out it is a good time to be a cardinals fan i'm looking forward to the game hopefully you are as well thanks again for tuning in this has been the revenge of the birds podcast we're catching you on the other side before the green bay packers game meantime take care go cards